remember that when we go about our day, uh, when we're when we're doing work, when we're raising kids, when we're in a conflict, when we're just having a hard time, that, that at the end of the day we just surrender all and, and we trust it all to your hands. We, we've done that by, many of us have done that by giving you our lives, by asking for your forgiveness and committing ourselves to you. We've surrendered all. But then we also have to remind ourselves, Lord, that we want to do this daily. This is continual, constant surrender, submission, to, to everything you want for us, to everything that you are. So I pray that that would carry us into this sermon today, especially one on pride, that we'd can be able to see again, this is not about us. None of this is about us. This is all about you. But the amazing thing is that you love us and, and that you've decided to give us the most amazing gift ever. And so we surrender all and receive the gift. Thank you. So I pray that as we look at your word, that we would understand it well, understand it correctly, but also apply it correctly. Let's use it correctly. Please fill me with your spirit as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn uh, to the book of 2 Samuel. The very last chapter, 2 Samuel 24. Today we're talking about pride. And I think pride's a hard thing for us to get our hands on. I think I think it's a slippery sort of sin, like we'd all agree that pride is bad, it's, it's a bad thing, but, but, but when it comes to like seeing it in ourselves, when it comes to calling it out, it's just hard, because you could say to somebody, you got pride, and they're going to say, no, no, that, that's not what that was, how, how do you know that that was pride? Pride is a slippery sort of sin, and, and what makes it that way? Well, I, I thought of a few things I think that make pride a hard thing to talk about, to recognize, to get your hands around. Uh, and one reason is because it, it just doesn't have a, a thou shalt not sort of command attached to it. It doesn't have that, well, so if the Bible says thou shalt not commit pride, how do I know when you've done it? How do I know when I've done it? H- how do I talk to anybody and say, well, obviously you committed pride right over here? No, really, I, I don't know how that works. Because it'd be one thing if you lied to me and I could verify it. Or if I stole something and you could say, I saw you do it. The camera got you doing it. But those are like thou shalt not kinds of sins. When you do it, there's evidence. I saw you. You did it. Or when you gossip, you said those words because I heard them. There's proof. The pride's that thing where it's like, how do you prove it? How do you demonstrate it? Well, I think there is a thou shalt not command attached to pride. I don't want to tell you what it is yet. You can kind of be in suspense for a few minutes at least um, until we get there. But the other reason I think pride is hard to get our hands around B uh, behind me is uh, the second reason being, uh, let me find it, pride gets big things done. Pride gets big things done and big things are impressive. Pride will build a big church. Pride will get you a, a, a great home. It'll get you a really nice car. 
Pride will do a lot of cool, impressive things. Pride will get professional athletes pretty far. It will earn them a great paycheck. Pride does a lot of things like that. And big things to us Americans are impressive. Pride built the Tower of Babel. Is that a good biblical example of what I'm talking about? You can build big things of pride. And, and you know what? Most of us Americans, I think if we're being honest, we'd buy the ticket to see that thing. We'd buy the ticket for the Tower of Babel if we were there. You know, because we would be so impressed with it. Let's be honest. But because God looks down and says, look at that building project way down there. I don't like it. It's prideful. I'm going to stop that right now. We're going to confuse the languages. You know, we, we all know that. A lot of us know that Sunday school story. But pride will build big, big things. And to most Americans, big is impressive. That's what we want. That's what we celebrate in our culture. That makes, hard, that makes pride kind of difficult to get your hands around. Because how do you know if big is good or big is bad? How do you know? Um, C, pride is hard to get your hands around, I think, because we have a devil who's extremely prideful, a devil who wishes he was God. Pride makes the devil the devil. I'm going to pull that quote out in a little bit, but I think that's C.S. Lewis. Pride makes the devil the devil. He wants to be like God, and God said, you can't. And so if, if the devil is the most prideful being, which we have no reason to think otherwise, and he's also the best deceiver, you think he's done a really good job of helping us be prideful like himself. He wants us to be like himself. He wants us to share in his punishment. Okay? And then D, uh, finally, I think pride is hard because there's a good pride, right? I mean, you know, you say to your kids, I'm proud of you. At least I hope you tell your kids I'm proud of you. That's not a bad thing to say. In fact, the Bible uses, the, our English translations use the word pride in a good way as well. I mean, you can find the word pride. It doesn't always mean a bad thing. It can mean, I feel really good about you. I love you. What you did was so good. You are in yourself so good. I'm proud of you. And when my parents said that to me, I marked it down. I mean, th- those are the words kids eat up because they shape how you see those relationships. So that's hard with pride because pride can be a really good thing. I'm not talking about the good pride today. Let's just make that distinction I'm not talking about that I'm proud of you sort of thing. I'm talking about uh, I want to exalt myself sort of pride. Uh, Can we put that definition up there next? Nice little summary of pride. The pride that I'm talking about today is is an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-importance, and self-exaltation. You notice all those words start with the same thing, right? Self-raising myself in relation to God. Tower of Babel, I'm living large, I'm going big, it's exalting me in relation to who God is, in relation to what other people are. That's pride. That's the pride I'm talking about today. So, with that in mind, if you look at 2 Samuel 24, this is the last chapter of Samuel. I mean, the next chapter, we're gonna, in the next books, we're going to be talking about, not in here, but if you keep reading, you would learn about Solomon, the next king. So so this is like the end of David's life, and yet you're going, okay, this is not chronologically correct. The passage I'm about to read today is in in somewhere in the middle of David's reign, not at the end. 
Okay, it's not like after First Samuel, Second Samuel 24, David dies. Although the writer placed it at the end of his life for a reason, a theological reason. And again, I'll keep you in suspense until the end. If you figure it out beforehand, then you can pat yourself on the back and be prideful. Okay. All right. So. All right, verse uh, 1 of chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many are there. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? The King's words, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the King to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped at Aror, south of the town of the, uh, in the gorge, and they went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead, the region of uh, Tatim, uh, Hodshi, I'm sorry, uh, and on to Dan, uh, Dan Jan and around Sidon. They went to the towards the fortress of Tyre, all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. All that to say, they were thorough. There you go. We would have sorted that, I'm sure. Um, after they'd gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab reported the number of the fighting men of Israel. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men. Now, we'll pause there. And number one in your notes, if you're taking notes with me, they're in your bulletins. Let's talk for a few minutes about the crime of pride. They're all C words today. If you like your sermons like that, you'll love this one. Okay, The crime of pride. You know, pride's a crime. Pride is bad. Uh, this is what David was doing. Now, there's all sorts of like hard things here. You know, like first of all, why is taking a census so bad? I mean, I, I know at least one pastor that would never take attendance on a Sunday morning because of this passage. He didn't want to know the number. Now, in some ways, that's brilliant because maybe it did feed his pride. In other ways, I think every person's an important person. Let's know who we got, you know. So you, you could go either way with that, but I, 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 I respect that. So the first problem here is that it says in verse 1, the, the, the anger of the Lord burning against Israel, he incited David, saying, go take a census of Israel and Judah. So, so, da- so David is, is sinning by taking the census because he, we just read he repented of it. And God's going to have a consequence for it. We're going to read it in a minute. And so you go, God doesn't tempt people. What's going on? He incited David? What in the world? James 1 says he doesn't tempt people to sin. It's like, it's like God is saying, uh, 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 David, you, know, you, you, you want to do this thing that I'm going to punish you for. No, that doesn't make sense. Well, in First Chronicles, this passage, this story is told in a different context. And it has a different person working behind the scenes. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. God, Satan, what's going on? And I think probably the easiest and clearest answer is this. You know the book of Job? 
and, and Job's a righteous man, and Satan, the devil, appears before God and says, if we took everything you blessed Job with away, he would curse you. And God says, you can take these things away, but don't take his life. And so Satan takes all these things away. His kids die. His fortune, his wealth is gone. Job doesn't curse God. Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. And at that point, you could say, time out. Um, God didn't cause your kids to die. Satan did. I know that you have to understand what was going on in heaven. Satan went up there and said, I want to hurt Job. And God said, it's okay. Don't kill him, but you can do these things. Satan did it, Job, please. But Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Satan is underneath God's sovereignty. That, that, that's the only way this makes sense, is to say, when Satan acts, he does evil things, and somehow, some way, they fall within God's redemptive plan. Who could make something redemptive out of evil? Only the Lord, right? And so it's true. The Lord rules over David and things that happen to David and rules over what Satan does to David and God allowed this to happen, and Satan did this. So both are true, but God's overall things. Okay, so, so David is tempted to take a census. Now, the other thing I think you should uh, be aware of, in a minute, we're going to look at the consequences of this census, and some of you already know what happens here, but Israel, th- the whole nation gets the consequence. The people get the consequence. And, and then you go, well, that's not fair. Why would people get the consequence for David's sin? And I show you verse 1 again. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. So there is an unnamed sin in verse 1. I don't know why God was mad at the nation. You know, I mean, last week we looked at how Israel rebelled against David with Absalom. Maybe that made God angry. You know what I mean? Like, like, like the nation did something to make God angry. And so, this isn't just like picking on David. This is a national sin that we're not told about. I'm sorry, the biblical writer didn't give us that information, so I'm not going to try to speculate. I mean, my own, one speculation is, just giving you an example, they turned against David with Absalom. That was bad. That was last week. Um, okay, so we can go on. Um, now, is taking a census bad? Um, do we have that? Let's, let's do this. Uh, yeah, Exodus 30:12. When you, this, is, this is God before David ever came around. When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he's counted, and then no plague will come on them when you number them. So clearly, at times, the census was okay, certain times. But you're supposed to pay this ransom. And I wish I could go deeper into this, but I just, I just want to throw out a couple ideas on the ransom. It's like when we counted people, they paid money to be counted. And I think the idea was you were saying, I, I'm not worthy you know, to be God's people. I'm not worthy to be counted. It kind of like, it'd, it'd be like us saying, I'm not worthy to be part of the church of God. I'm not worthy of being called a Christian because none of us are. And so they pay this, this ransom, this, this money, and they all paid the same amount. If you were rich, you paid the same amount as the poor because everybody's price is the same. Isn't that kind of beautiful? Your price is the same. Christ died for all. Okay. I don't know if David required that payment when they took the census of the soldiers. 
maybe that was violating it. We're not told exactly why and how David sinned by taking the census, but we know that he did. Now let me offer a couple things. I think at the root of this whole thing is pride. I believe it's David's pride. Like, let me number how many soldiers I have. And so that brings up the question of, well, why is pride so bad? You know, why is this? Let me add the number, because Joab recognized it. The commander of the army was like, don't do this, David. And David's like, we're going to do it. Why is pride bad? Just, just, just briefly. Like, it, it's worse than what you think. How about that? It's worse than what you think. Uh, a couple things on pride. Um, a, this is Satan's sin, you know. What got ki- Satan kicked out of heaven? Pride. He wanted to be like God, and God kicked him out. You can't exalt yourself like that. Nobody ever says, I want to be like Satan. You know, like, like, do you know that when you when you talk about your pride, sometimes I think, I think pastors do this. Maybe it's my sin, but it, it feels really good to say I struggle with pride because it's not one of those like sins. Like in the church, church leadership, you know that an adult website got hacked recently and the names all got released. And there's Christian leaders in on that list. And when we see those, we know a resignation is coming. You know what I mean? You know it's going to shake up a church if your pastor's name is on that list. But nobody, if a pastor said, I'm prideful of pride, would you say back to him, well, then you're a lot like Satan, actually. And maybe you're not fit to lead the church. (laughs) And you know what? there have been some pastors resigning because of pride. We've seen that in the news as well. I I just feel like we're not like, it it feels like a clean sin. I feel, I you know, it's like you could say, I make a lot of money, I deal with pride. Have you seen my house? It's terrible how big my house is. You know, it's like, no, come on. You're saying you're like the devil. That's what you're saying. That's not, that's not just like a small thing. Okay. Uh, B, uh, pride is the root of Adam and Eve's sin. Um, yep, they, eat, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yep, they, they took the fruit, they ate it. But didn't Satan say, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to exalt yourself to his level? Well, yeah, matter of fact, I do. Underneath, Their sin that infected all of us is pride that ought to tell you how deadly it is. See, here we go. Remember I said, is there a commandment, thou shalt not commit pride? Yeah, it's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And pride says, I am my own God. I exalt myself. At the heart of Atheism is I exalt myself. It's there. It's a breaking of the first commandment. Unfortunately, Christians who believe in God also break it because they exalt themselves and think more of themselves than they should. They're like the Pharisee, right? You know, uh, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like the tax collector over there. How many times have you looked at someone and said, boy, I'm glad I don't, I, I, I'm not like them. 
that, that I'm much more holy. Only by the grace of God we are holy. Okay, so I think, I think pride breaks the first commandment. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, D, uh, Jesus listed it among the heart issues that defile a person. So Jesus said, you know, if you're Jewish, you're not supposed to eat pork and all these other sorts of things. But it's not about the things you eat. It's the stuff that comes out of the heart. And he talked about, you know, sexual impurity, all sorts of things that we would list as like big sins that resign from your church kinds of sins for church leaders. And this one is in there. It's arrogance. It's right in there. It defiles you. And then uh, I think I got one more there. Um, How about this? How bad is pride if it keeps you from humbly repenting and receiving God's forgiveness? You know, the prideful person says, I have no need of God. So that person's not saved. That person's going to hell. How much should we hate pride for keeping people away from God? That's ugly. Here's uh, C.S. Lewis on it. He says it pretty well. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. You've got to love that. Um, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. It's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, in every family, since the world began. Can I read the last part one more time? It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It's kind of like when you sin, you should be able to look and see where the pride connects to it because it's there. Or maybe you like John Stott because he's not as wordy with his answer on pride. Can we get Stott's quote? Pride's your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Um, So David numbers the troops. Joab says, don't do it. David does it. Let's go to the next part. Uh, Verse 10. One little verse. David was conscience-stricken after he accounted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And I love this answer. I love it because remember a few weeks ago we talked about adultery and Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. And how did David face that sin? Well, God had to send a prophet. You know, and sometimes that's as stubborn as we are. Like it takes somebody to sit down with you and say, look what you've done. Oh, yeah. But, but this time, David's like, as soon as the numbers come in, 800,000 of Israel and 500,000 of Judah, those are the two kingdoms united under David. And David goes, oh, I messed up. So number two is, let's talk about the confession of pride. And even more than that, how do you confess it if you don't recognize it? That's a problem. I would challenge each of you to do this. I dare you to ask somebody if you deal with pride. Now, the problem is if you hear an answer you don't like, you're not, you can't cost the person the friendship because of that. If you ask them in genuineness, do, do you even see it? Do you recognize it? How did David recognize it? Well, I, I kind of wonder, again, speculating, just speculation here. You know when the numbers came in and they divided Israel and Judah, 800,000 Israel, 
500,000 Judah. Remember when David was on the run from his own son who gathered people in Israel? Sometimes I wonder if um, David was worried because, well, David's from the tribe of Judah. So you know they're going to be probably pretty loyal in Judah. But there happens to be 300,000 more in Israel than in Judah. Maybe he was thinking, just speculating, I wonder how many guys I have on my side. How many people from Judah? Just a maybe, just a maybe. I don't know the motive. Most of the time in pride, we don't really know exactly what's going on. Maybe, and this is another uh, interesting idea at least, you know the word for Satan that we looked at earlier? The word for Satan means adversary. Do you think maybe the, the people that translated the Hebrew Bible into English, they could have written the adversary incited David? Do you think maybe there was another nation, an adversary coming against David? And it made David kind of nervous, so he said, I better count my troops. I'm not going to trust in God. I'm going to count my troops. You know, maybe. Again, speculation at best. But how do you detect it in yourself? I think for David, uh, the answer in verse 10 is, he was conscious stricken. I think sometimes when you sin, you should ask yourself, why in the world did I do that? and see if the answer goes back to pride. You know? Why did I say that about that person? Why did I join in in the gossip? Because it made you feel good about yourself. Oh, pride. I got it. When I fought with my wife, why was I unwilling to apologize to her on the spot when I knew I was wrong? Oh, I got pride. You know what I mean? Like, like you look at the problem and you can find pride as a heart attitude underneath it. And if, you, if your conscience isn't sensitive, if you don't start looking for it, you won't find it. I'm not going to take you to Galatians 6, but if you want to know more, um, if we could put Galatians 6 up on the back behind me. Uh, Galatians 6 is like a pride test. I mean, it talks about exalting yourself and being prideful in yourself. And, and, and Paul has a few ideas on what you should do about that. He says, watch yourself. Um, you, need, you need to be looking at yourself. You need to bear the burdens of others. Prideful people tend to care more about themselves than other people. They don't want to help other people. They want to help themselves. Are you a helper of other people? Number uh, uh, C, test your actions. Why did I do that? Why wouldn't I forgive that person? Why did I gossip? Is pride underneath it? Test them. Uh, D, carry your own load. You ever met a prideful person that's also very lazy? Yeah. Uh, they think things should just be served to them. Like things, they just, they're so intelligent, they're so gifted that they don't really need to work hard. No, that's pride. If you think you're too smart for hard work, that's pride. I don't care if you have money or don't have money, that's pride. Ever had someone come up to you and try to help you and they share something wise with you but you won't hear it? There's that unteachability like, you want to help me do life better, but I won't hear it. That's pride. Uh, read Galatians 6 if you want to have a nice little pride test. It's all there. Again, I'm going to go for C.S. Lewis, though, as a summary of, of this whole thing. There can be no surer proof of confirmed pride than a belief that one is sufficiently humble. So let me ask you this. How are you doing on humility? 
And if you say, I'm doing good, then I say, you're doing terrible. All right? That's it. That's it. If you think you're doing good, you're doing terrible. If you think you're doing bad, then most likely you're doing pretty good. That's it. David was conscience-stricken. Why did I do this? Good job, David. That's humility right there. That is humility. And God didn't need to send a prophet to point it out to you. Okay? But please, do look at Galatians 6 on your own time. That's, it, it's good stuff. Let's talk about the consequences of pride next. Uh, this is what happens. Verse 11, Before David got up the next morning, which means right away, the word of the Lord came to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Oh my goodness. It's like the parents saying, go cut your own switch, you know. Everybody have that growing up? We don't do that anymore, I don't think. But um, man, choose your punishment. Um, verse 13, Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in the land? or three years of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three years of plague in the land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. That means God. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands, which means send the three days of plague. And I'll tell you why in a second. The Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated and 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented considering the disaster, and it said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are the sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Okay. Keep in mind, again, God was angry at Israel. You have 70,000 that died because of this. Uh, what, what in the world is that whole thing about make your choice? You have three choices. You get three years of famine, three months of being on the run from enemies, enemies are attacking, or three days of plague. And David says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. What's that? Well, look, if there's famine in the land, then, then David has to look to other nations for corn and wheat. Please give us food. Sell us food. Secondly, if he asks for three months of being on the run from enemies, then, you know, people are going to suffer. People are going to be attacked. Um, and and, and it's, it's all based on the evil of the nations around him. And he knows they're evil. But a plague... They had no concept of germs back then. You know that. If you've read your science books, you, you know. Like germs, really? Like you know the things we used to do to help people get over like sickness that are so unsanitary? Oh, you know? And so it's like a plague. Where do plagues come from? Well, disease, germs, all this stuff, these un invisible things that you can't see. Sounds very supernatural, doesn't it? To, to, to an ancient person's mind, David thinks a plague. That's from the Lord. And God is merciful. 
I'll give myself into the Lord's hands, but don't let enemies attack me and don't let famine happen because I've got to beg for food from other nations and buy it. Uh, some ancient rabbis also say that this is very noble of David because, you know, if he would have gone to, um, if it would have been famine, guess what? David's always going to have food on his table. He's the king. People would suffer. David would be immune. And the rabbis say, if he would have had enemies coming after him, well, he's got an army to protect him. But people in villages don't have armies to protect them as well. Plague opens David up to the punishment as well. Because how do you control a plague? So there's humility here, I think, in the answer. And there's understanding that God is merciful. Please, let us fall into the merciful hands of God. Okay, so this ought to be a little challenge because sometimes as Christians, and I think especially people in the world, they look at stuff like this and they go, boy, God is just zapping the Israelites. Look what he did. Uh, and we assume that if we were God, we would outmercy him. Can I just tell you this passage is trying to speak to you and teach you that you won't outmercy God. David says, I don't want other nations to come against me because I know their mercy is in short supply, but God's is infinite. You see, it's supposed to teach that God is more merciful than regular human beings. And it's true. Yes, he's holy. Yes, there's consequences. But he's merciful. So, um, you know when prideful people are well off and life seems to be going well and you look at it and you're like, when I get prideful, God kind of like disciplines me. It's a common teaching of Scripture. God exalts the humble, but he pushes down the prideful. Right? He, he humbles the prideful. Um, the consequence of pride for you and me is not the death angel sweeping across the United States. It's, it's just that God is going to push you down. You, you ever you ever go to like Chuck E. Cheese or something and play the whack-a-mole game? Can I have a volunteer, please? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Kids, this is for you though. You go to Chuck E. Cheese, you whack-a-mole, and the things pop up and you knock them down. You knock them down. Now, I think kids, adults, when we start bragging about ourselves, when we start thinking we're so great, when we start ignoring the problems of other people and we don't want to help them, when we're concerned about ourselves the most, this is God. Boom. You know? It's called discipline. Boom. And, and that's what it is, kids. Don't brag about yourself. Don't act like you're better than everybody else. I know you see the athletes on TV that they do something cool and they celebrate it for like, if they could, for 10 minutes, if they could. You know, now we have rules restricting those things. If that's you, you have a heavenly father that says, I don't want you to boast and brag like that. Boom. And he'll knock you down. It'd be better for you not to brag. It'd be better for you to treat other people better than you treat yourself. That's what God wants for you. This isn't fun. Only in Chuck E. Cheese.
All right. Number four. Here's our awesome ending. So God in his mercy doesn't let the death angel sweep over Jerusalem with the plague. By the way, some scholars think the 70,000 that died may have been in David's army. Maybe. Maybe. You know? That would be, that'd be an interesting punishment because it would be in connection to, to the sin of pride. How many people do I got for me? Okay? Um, so, as, as, as the death angel is like over Jerusalem, somehow God gives David the eyes to see it. He, he, it's a plague. It's invisible, Right? But David can see the death angel doing it. Kind of reminds you of Passover, and I remember watching the Ten Commandments with that green mist, right? Remember that as a kid? Man, that just stuck out in my mind. Death angel. Um, Verse 18. On that day, so the plague is over, God has mercy. On that day, Gad went to David and said, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor, of Aaron the Jebusite. That's where the angel stopped, right there, the threshing floor, where, where, you, where you thresh the, the, the wheat. So David went up, and the Lord, had, the Lord went up as, as, as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aaron looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went down and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Aaron said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David's probably thinking, Did you see the death angel standing right here? <laughs> you know? I mean, he doesn't say that, but. I'm here to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. May your, your majesty, Arana, gives all this to your king, uh, to the king. Arana also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I'll not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and a sacrifice, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Okay. Good news, the plague is stopped. A sacrifice was made right where the death angel stopped. The threshing floor. Now, why is this passage at the end of 2 Samuel 24? Anybody figure it out? Uh, The pride statement got you quiet, didn't it? (laughs) Anybody that knows it won't dare raise their hand. Um, Okay, so uh, can you bring up the verse in, uh, is it Kings or Chronicles? Chronicles. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where? Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to his father David. It was at the threshing floor of Aaron, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. That's the temple site. David bought it that day. Fifty shekels of silver. That land became the temple where people meet with God and have their sins forgiven. The place where you meet with God is also the place where we see sin in all of its ugliness with the death angel about to strike Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound like the cross? At the cross, Jesus dies and it's ugly and it's bloody and it's terrible and if you make a movie, it ought to be rated R because it's horrible because your sin's horrible. Your violations are horrible. And that's where the death angel stops. That's where mercy starts. Mercy starts at the cross. 
they built a temple because there was no crucifixion of Christ yet. And if you wanted to meet with God and have your sins forgiven, you go to the temple. That's where God's at. Now God is living in the hearts of people. But, but that's where you went. And this is what Jesus said. Remember this? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus' body is the temple. Do, do you want to suffer for your sins? Do, do you want to pay the price yourself? Or do you want to meet at the temple? Do you want to meet at Jesus Christ and have it all forgiven? This story is at the end of Second Samuel to say, and here's where we got the place for the temple. This is where it came from. But this story is a, is a description of the gospel. Your sin is terrible. You deserve death. Jesus died on a cross to pay for you. That's what the story is about. So meet him at the temple. Meet at the temple of Jesus' body. Look at Jesus' body on the cross in your mind's eye and realize that was for me. And receive mercy. You can't out-mercy God. You can't do it. He'll fully forgive you. I want to pray for you. Uh, worship team, could we do inside out?